Chapter One of Ride Proud Rebel by Andre Norton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Ride with Morgan. The roan switched tail angrily against the persistent fly, and lipped water, dripping big drops back to the surface of the brook. His rider moved swiftly with an economy of action to unsaddle, wipe the besweated back with a wisp of last year's dried grass, and wash down each mud-splattered leg with stream water. Always care for the mount first, when a man's life, as well as the safety of his mission, depends upon four subordinate legs more than on his own two. Though he had little claim to a thoroughbred's points, the roan was as much a veteran of the forces as his groom. With all a veteran's ability to accept and enjoy small favors, of the immediate present, without speculating too much concerning the future. He blew gustily in pleasure under the attention and began to sample a convenient stand of spring grass. His mount cared for, Drew Rennie swung up saddle, blanket, and the meager possessions which he had brought out of Virginia two weeks ago to the platform in a crooked tree overhanging the brook. He settled beside them on the well-seasoned timbers of the old treehouse to rummage through his saddlebags. The platform had been there a long time, before Chickamauga and the Ohio raid, before the first roll of drums in 61. Drew pulled a crease shirt out of the bags and sat with it draped over one knee, remembering. Sheldon Barrett and he, they had built it together one hot week in summer, had named it Boone's Fort, and it was the only thing at Red Springs Drew had really ever owned. His dark eyes were fixed now on something more than the branches about him, and his mouth tightened until his face was not quite sullen, only shuddered. Five years ago, only five years. Yes, five years next month. But the past two years of his own personal freedom and war, those seemed to equal ten. Now there was no one left to remember the fort's existence which made it perfect for his present purpose. The warmth of the sun beating down through the young leaves made Drew brush his battered slouch hat to the flooring and luxuriate in the heat. Sometimes he didn't think he'd ever get the bite of last year's winter cold out of his bones. The light pointed up every angle of jaw and cheekbone, making it clear that experience, hard experience, and not years, had melted away boyish roundness of chin-line, narrowed the watchful eyes ever alert to his surroundings. A cavalry scout was wary, or he ceased to be a scout, or maybe even alive. Shirt in hand, Drew dropped lightly to the ground with the same dispatch as he had cared for his horse, made his own toilet, scrubbing his too thin body with a sigh of content as heartfelt as that the roan had earlier voiced. The fresh shirt was a dark brown-gray, but the patched breeches were Yankee blue, and the boots he pulled on when he had bathed were also the enemy's gift. Good stout leather he had been lucky enough to find in a supply wagon they had captured a month ago. Butternut shirt, union pants and boots, the unofficial standard uniform of most any trooper of the Army of the Tennessee in this month of May, 1864, and he had garments which were practically intact. What was one patch on the seat nowadays? 
For the first time, Drew grinned at his reflection in the small mirror he had been using when he scraped a half-week's accumulation of soft beard from his face. Sure, he was all spruced up now, ready to make a polite courtesy call at the big house. The grin did not fade, but was gone in a flash, leaving no hint of softness now about his gaunt features, no light in the intent, measuring depths of his dark gray eyes. A call at Red Springs was certainly the last thing in the world for him to consider seriously. His last interview within its walls could still make him wince when he recalled it, word by scalding word. No, there was no place for a Rennie and a rebel Rennie to make matters blacker under the righteous roof of Alexander Maddock. Hatred could be a red-hot burning to choke a man's throat, leaving him speechless and hurting inside. Since he had ridden out of Red Springs, he had often been cold, very often hungry, and under orders willingly, which would have surprised his grandfather. But in another way, he had been free as never before in all his life. In the army, the past did not matter at all if one did one's job well. And in the army, the civilian world was as far away as if it were conducted in the cold chasms of the moon. Drew leaned back against the tree trunk, wanting to yield to the soft wind and the swinging privacy of the embowered treehouse, wanting to forget everything and just lie there for a while in the only part of the past he remembered happily. But he had his orders, horses for General Morgan, horses and information, to feed back to that long column of men riding or trudging westward, unbooted, footsore feet, up the trail through the Virginia mountains on the way home to Kentucky. These were men who carried memories of the Ohio defeat last year, which they were determined to wipe out this season. Just as a lot of them had to flush with gun smoke the stench of a northern prison barracks from their nostrils. And there were horses at Red Springs to mount Morgan's men on. Alexander Maddock's best stock was a prospect which had its appeal. Drew tossed his haversack to the platform and added his carbine to it. The army colts in his belt holsters would not be much hindrance while crawling through cover, but the larger weapon might be. He thumped a measure of dust from his hat, settled it over his hair, as black as that felt had once been, and crossed the brook with a running leap. The roan lifted his head to watch Drew go, and then settled back to grazing. This, too, followed a pattern both man and horse had practiced for a long time. Drew could almost imagine that he was again hunting Sheldon as a Shawnee on the warpath while he dodged from one bush to the next. Only Chickamauga stood between the past and now, and Sheldon Barrett would never again range ahead in play or in earnest. The scout came out on a small rise where the rails of the fence were cloaked on his side by brush. Drew lay flat, his chin propped up on his crooked arm, to look down the gradual incline of the pasture to the training paddock. Beyond that stood the big house, its native brick settling back slowly into the same earth from which it had been molded in 1795. In the pasture were the brood mares, five of them, each with an attendant foal, all long legs and broom tail. 
still young enough to be bewildered by so large and new a world. In the paddock, Drew's head raised an inch or so, and he pressed forward until his hat was pushed back by the rail. The two-year-olds being schooled in the paddock were enough to excite any horseman. Red Spring stock right enough of the Gray Eagle aerial breed, which was Alexander Maddox's pride. Born almost black, this colt had shed his baby fur two seasons ago for a dark iron-gray hide, which would grow lighter with the years. He had eclipsed his heritage, but he was more than a racing machine. He was, Drew's forehead rasped against the weathered wood of the rail, he was the kind of a horse a man could dream about all his days and perhaps find once in a lifetime, if he were lucky. Give the colt three or four more years, and there wouldn't be any horse that could touch him, not in Kentucky or anywhere else. He was circling on a leading strap now, throwing his feet in a steady, rhythmic pattern around the hub of a negro groom, who was holding the strap and admiring the action. Mounted on another gray, a mare with a dainty, high-held head was a woman, her figure trim in a habit almost the same shade of green as the fields. Drew pulled back. Then he smiled wryly at his instinctive retreat. His aunt, Mariana Forbes, had abilities to be respected, but he very much doubted if she could either sense his presence or see through the leafy wall of his present spy-hole. Yet caution dictated that he get about his real business and inspect the fields where the horses he sought should be grazing. He halted several times during his perimeter march to survey the countryside, and the bits of activity he spied upon began to puzzle him. Aunt Marianna's supervision of the colt's schooling had been the beginning, and he had seen her later riding out with Rafe, the overseer, to make the daily rounds a duty which had never been undertaken at Red Springs by anyone other than his grandfather. Aunt Mariana had every right to be at Red Springs. She had been born under its roof, having left it only as a bride to live in Lexington. The war had brought her back when her husband became an officer in the 2nd Kentucky Cavalry Union. But now, riding with Rafe, watching in the paddock, where was Alexander Maddock? Red Springs was his grandfather. Drew found it impossible to think of the house and the estate without the man, though in the past two years he had discovered very few things could be dismissed as impossible. Curiosity made him want to investigate the present mystery, but the memory of his last exit from that house curbed such a desire. Drew had never been welcomed there from the day of his birth within those walls, and the motive for his final flight from there had only provided an added aggravation for his grandfather. A staunch Union supporter wanted no part of a stubborn-willed and defiant grandson who rode with John Hunt Morgan. Drew clung to his somewhat black thoughts as he made his way to the pasture. The escape he had found in the army was no longer so complete when he skulked through these familiar fields but there were only two horses grazing peacefully in the field, dedicated by custom to the four- and five-year-olds, and neither was of the best stock. One could imagine that Red Springs had already contributed to the service. Of course, Morgan's men 
We're not the only riders aiming to sweep good horseflesh out of Kentucky, bluegrass, this season. And here the Union cavalry would be favored. There was a slim chance that a few horses might be in the stables. He debated the chance of that against the risk of discovery, and continued debating it as he started back to the treehouse. Drew had known short rations and slim foraging for a long time, but the present pinch in his middle sharpened when he sighted the big house, with its attendant summer kitchen showing a trail of chimney smoke. Alexander Maddock might have considered his grandson an interloper at Red Springs. Certainly the old man never concealed the state of his feelings on that subject. But neither had he, in any way, slighted what he deemed to be his duty towards Drew. There had been plenty of good clothing, the right sort for a Maddock grandson, and the usual bountainous table set by hospitable Kentucky standards. Just as there had been education, sometimes enforced by the use of a switch when the tutor, imported from Lexington, thought it necessary to impress learning on a rebellious young mind by a painful application in another portion of the body. Education, as well as a blooded horse in the stables, and all the other prerequisites of a young bluegrass grandee, but never any understanding, affection, or sympathy. That cold behavior, that cutting, weighing, and judgment of every act of childish mischief and boyish recklessness might have crushed some into a colorless obedience, but it had made of Drew a rebel long before he tugged on the short, gray-shelled jacket of a Confederate cavalryman. Drew had forgotten the feel of linen next to his now seldom-clean skin, the set of broadcloth across the shoulders, and he depended upon the Rhone's services with an appreciation which had nothing to do with boasted bloodlines, having discovered in the army that a cold-blooded horse could keep going on rough forage when a finer-bred hunter broke down. But today the famed dinner-table at Red Springs was a painful memory to one facing only cold hoe-cake and stone-hard dried beef. He circled back to the brush screening the brook and the treehouse. Now he stood very still, his hand sliding one of the heavy colts out of its holster. The roan was still grazing, paying no attention to a figure who was kneeling on the limb-supported platform and turning over the gear Drew had left piled there. The scout flitted about a bush, choosing a path which would bring him out at the stranger's back. That same warm sun, now striking from a different angle into the treehouse, was bright on a thick tangle of yellow hair, curly enough to provide its owner with a combing problem. Drew straightened to his full height. The sense of the past, which had dogged him all day, now struck like a blow. He couldn't help calling aloud that name, even though the sober part of his brain knew there could be no answer. Shelley? The blonde head turned, and blue eyes looked at him, startled, across a bowed shoulder. Drew's puzzlement was complete. Not Sheldon, of course, but who? The other's open surprise changed to wide-eyed recognition first. Drew! The hail came in a cracked voice of an adolescent as the other jumped down to face the scout. They stood at almost eye-to-eye -eye level, but the stranger was still a old boy, 
awkwardly unsure of strength or muscle control. "'You must be Boyd,' Drew blinked, something in him still clinging to the memory of Sheldon. Sheldon, who had helped build the treehouse. Why, Boyd was only a small boy, usually tagging his impatient elders, not this tall, almost exact copy of his dead brother. "'Sure, I'm Boyd. And it's true, then, ain't it, Drew? General Morgan's coming back here. Where?' He glanced over his shoulder once more, as if expecting to see a troop prance up through the bushes along the stream. Drew holstered the revolver. Rumors of that around, he asked casually. Some Boyd answered. The Yankee lovers called out the home guard yesterday. What sort of chance do they think they'd have against General Morgan? Drew moved toward the roan's picket rope. As his fingers closed on that, he thought fast. Just as the Maddox and the Forbeses were Union, the Barretts were, or had been, Southern in sympathy. Most of Kentucky was divided that way now, but what might have been true two years ago was not necessarily a fact today. One took no chances. You come back to see your grandfather, Drew? Any reason why I should? The whole countryside must know very well the state of affairs between Alexander Maddock and Drew Rennie. Well, he's been sick for so long. Didn't you know about that? Boyd must have read Drew's answer in his face, for he spilled out the news quickly. He had some kind of fit when he heard Murray was killed. Drew dropped the picket rope. Uncle Murray? Dead? Boyd nodded. Killed at Murfreesboro in 62. But the news didn't come till about a week after the battle. Mr. Maddock was in town when Judge Hagerstorm told him just turned red in the face and fell down in the middle of the street. They brought him home, and sometime he sits outdoors. He can't walk too good, and he talks thick. You can hardly understand him. So that's why Aunt Marianne is in charge. Drew thought of Uncle Murray, swept away by time, and the chances of war, as so many others, and no emotion stirred within him. Murray Maddock had firmly agreed with his father concerning the child who was a result of a runaway match between a sister Melanie and a despised Texan. But Uncle Murray's death must indeed have been a paralyzing blow for the old man at Red Springs, with all his pride and his plans for his only son. Yes, Cousin Marianna runs Red Springs, Boyd assented. She and Rafe, they sell horses to the army, the Bluebellies. He used the term with the concentration of one determined to say the right thing at the right time. Drew laughed, and with that spontaneous outburst, years fell away from his somber face. I take it that you do not approve of bluebellies, Boyd. Of course not. Me? I'm going to join General Morgan now. Ain't nobody going to keep me from doing that. Again his voice scaled up out of control, and he flushed. You're rather young, Drew began when the other interrupted him with something close to desperation in his voice. "'No, I ain't too young. That's all I ever hear. Too young to do this. Too young to be thinking about things like that. Well, I ain't much younger than you were, Drew Rennie, when you joined up with Captain Castleman and rode south to join General Morgan, you and Shelley. And you know that, too. I'll be sixteen on the 15th of this July, and this time I'm going.' Where's the general now, Drew? 
The scout shrugged. Moving fast. Your rumors probably know as much as I do. They plant him half a dozen places at once. He might be in any one of them or fifty miles away. That's how Morgan rides. But you're going to join him, and you're going to take me with you, won't you, Drew? The lightness was gone from the older boy's eyes. His mouth set in controlled anger. I'm not going to do anything of the kind, Boyd Barrett. He spoke the words slowly, in an even tone, with a fraction of pause between each. Men of the command had once or twice heard young Rennie speak that way. Although difficult to know well, he had the general reputation of being easy to get along with. But a few times he had erupted into action as might a spring uncoiling from tight pressure, and that action was usually preceded by just such quiet statements as the one he had just made to Boyd. Boyd, however, was never one to be defeated in a first skirmish of wills. Why not, he demanded now. Because Drew offered the first argument he could think of which might be acceptable to the other. I'm on scout in enemy-held territory. If I'm taken, it's not good. I have to ride light and fast, and this is duty I've been trained to do, so I can't afford to be hampered by a green kid. I can ride just as fast and hard as you can, Drew Rennie, and I have whirl away for my own now. He's certainly better than that nag. With an arrogant lift of the chin, Boyd indicated the roan, which had raised his head and was chewing rather noisily, regarding the two by the treehouse with mild interest. Don't underrate Shawnee. For an instant, Drew rose to the roan's defense, and then found himself irritated at being so drawn from the main argument. And I wouldn't care if you had Gray Eagle himself under you, boy. I'm not taking you with me. Let us be snapped up by the Yankees, and you'd be in bigger trouble than I would. He gestured to his shirt and breeches. I'm in uniform. You ain't. No blue bellies could drop on us, Boyd pushed. I know where all the garrisons are around here. All about their patrols. I could get us through quicker than you can yourself. I ain't no green kid. Drew slapped the blanket down on Shawnee's back, smoothed it flat with a palm stroke, and jerked his saddle from the platform. He could not stay right here now that Boyd had smoked him out, maybe nowhere in the neighborhood with this excitable boy dogging him. The scout was driven to a second line of defense. What about Cousin Mary, he asked, as he tightened the cinch. Have you talked this over with her, enlisting, I mean? Boyd's lower lip protruded in a child's pout. His eyes shifted away from Drew's direct gaze. She never said no. Did you ask her? Drew challenged. Did you ask your grandfather when you left? Boyd tried a counterattack. This time Drew's laughter was harsh, without humor. You know I didn't, and you also know why. But I didn't leave a mother. He was being purposely brutal now, for a good reason. Sheldon had ridden away before. Boyd must not now go. In Drew's childhood, his father's cousin, Meredith Barrett, had been the only one who had really cared about him. His only escape from the cold bleakness of Red Springs had been Barrett's Oak Hill. There was a big debt he owed Cousin Mary. He could not add to it the burden of taking away her second son. Sure, he had been only a few months older than this boy, 
when he had run away to war, but he had not left anyone behind who would worry about him. And Alexander Maddock's cold discipline had tempered his grandson into someone far more able to take hard knocks than Boyd Barrett might be for years to come. Drew had met those knocks, thick and fast, enduring them as the price of his freedom. You were mad at your grandfather and you ran away. Well, I ain't mad at mother, but I ain't going to sit at home with General Morgan coming. He needs men. They've been recruiting for him on the quiet. You know they have. And I've got to make up for Sheldon. Drew swung around and caught Boyd's wrist in a grip tight enough to bring a reflex backward jerk from the boy. That's no way to make up for Sheldon's death, running away from home to fight. Don't give me any nonsense about going to kill Yankees because they killed him. When a man goes to war, well, he takes his chances. Shelley did at Chickamauga. War ain't a private fight, just one man up against another. But he was making no impression. He couldn't. At Boyd's age, you could not imagine death as coming to you, nor were you able to visualize the horrors of an ill-equipped field hospital any more than you could picture all the rest of it, the filth, hunger, cold, and boredom, with now and then a flash of whirling horses and men clashing on some road or field, or the crazy stampede of other men yelling their throats raw as they charged into a hell of mini-balls and canister shot. I'm going to ride with General Morgan like Shelley did, Boyd repeated, doggedly, with that stubbornness which seasons ago had kept him eternally tagging his impatient elders. That's up to you. Suddenly Drew was tired, tired of trying to find words to pierce to Boyd's thinking brain, if one had a thinking brain at his age. Slinging his carbine, Drew mounted Shawnee. But I do know one thing. You're not going with me. Drew, Drew, just listen once. Shawnee answered to the pressure of his rider's knees and leaped the brook. Drew bowed his head to escape the lash of a low branch. There was no going back ever, he thought bitterly, shutting his ears to Boyd's cry. He had been a fool to ride this way at all. End of Chapter One